0: I've just stopped looking at the money, which is so not normal for me. Counterintuitive. At the risk of sounding however this sounds, I've almost lost track because it's not the main thing that I think about in my business. The main thing that I think about is how do I delight clients? What is the delight that they want? And how do I delight them as fast as possible? Best possible results, least amount of time, best experience.
1: Hello, hello. Welcome to Solo as Women, where we're all about turning your expertise into wealth and impact. I'm Rochelle Moulton, and today I'm here with my pal, Geraldine Carter, force of nature and business coach for overworked solo CPAs and firm owners who want to go down to 40 hours a week without sacrificing revenue. Geraldine, welcome. Hi, Rochelle. I'm so happy to be here. Well, one of the many reasons that I am so thrilled to have you on the show is the way that you've established and grown your soloist business. I mean, I find it both aspirational and inspirational. And plus, we're going to talk about two of our favorite topics, right? How to keep making more money without working more hours and staying solo.
0: Hmm. Oh, I love it.
1: Okay. Right. Well, let's bring everybody kind of up to speed. Let's start with what made you decide
0: to start your own business? Like,
1: was there a catalyst that sent you in this direction?
0: I don't want to say that I needed something to do, but I needed something to do. (laughs) And I needed to put Cheerios in the bowl. And I had started a previous business with a friend that we had built and it was successful. And I knew I wanted to go in a different direction. And I knew that I was going to start a family. And I was like, okay, now what do we do? Now what do I do? What does this look like? So when I started, I actually wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but I knew that I didn't want to go work for somebody else because I make a horrible employee and I don't want to be employed. Nobody wants me as their employee. (laughs) (laughs) And because I just, I don't follow instructions. Shocker. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought about, okay, well, what are my options then? And I had five ideas on my list for businesses that I could start and kind of be a soloist. And I knew that I didn't want to grow a giant company, or at least I thought I knew I didn't want to grow a giant company. But I was like, all right, do I be a CFP? Because I like money and I like managing money and investments and all that stuff. And I think my women especially need a lot of help with that kind of thing. But I went down that rabbit hole and I was like, ooh, 2000 hour qualification. No, thanks. And then I was like, hmm, you know, everybody says I make, I love making ice cream (laughs) Sort of a terrible it's a I love making ice cream and I make delicious ice cream. If we're doing raw Geraldine, <laughs> the name of my ice cream and I have labels for it is creamy cheese, inappropriately delicious.
1: I can so <laughs> see that. Oh my goodness.
0: It turned out the minute that I wanted to turn that into a business and somebody said health department, I was like, I'm out. Yeah,
1: food is tough.
0: Yep. And then at this point, I forget what the other ones were, but at the end that left coaching and I was like, well, this is the last one on the list and it's time to get some Cheerios in the bowl. So I signed up for a coaching certification program. And the minute I signed up the first class, I was like, this is where I'm meant to be. I love this. And that was about eight years ago. I was pregnant with my first kid and that's how I got into it. And I've just been finding my way exploring ever since.
1: Well, I know from some of our other conversations that it was kind of a twisty road that got you from there to here. Yes. So, maybe can you talk us through what it was like entering the coaching space and especially finding your niche because you're not a CPA and yeah. yet you serve CPAs. I'm just curious how you got there.
0: Yeah. So, twisted road is exactly it. And I, you know, like many business owners who hang their own shingle, Thought that I could just sell coaching. And doesn't everybody want mindfulness coaching? Doesn't everybody want to think better thoughts? Well, maybe, but it turns out it's really hard to sell that by the session. So I had to do my own exploring to figure out what it is that I would was offering and how I could benefit people or how that skill set could benefit people in a way that made sense for business. And simultaneously, I was having conversations with colleagues, and we would always shocker, wander into the money Mm -hmm. because that's where I was so at home. And we'd start talking about the money and I'd be asking them questions about whatever. And it was on their balance sheet and they're like, I have no idea. And they didn't know. They knew very little about the state. They knew very little about the state of their money. Mm -hmm. So I just sort of followed my nose and I started helping business owners understand their financials and I would ask, where's your accountant? Where's your CPA? How come they're not explaining this to to you? And they would say, oh, they don't have time for me or they talk over me or they talk down to me. And I was like, huh, Mm -hmm. that's not like what's going on there. And then simultaneously, I had a couple of CPAs reach out and they were like, hey, you know, I've heard about the work that you're doing. And I think I'm wondering if you might be able to help us. And that was a real head scratcher for me because I thought, wait a minute, you guys are CPAs. You're exposed to business all day. Don't you guys understand business by osmosis? And once I got behind the curtains, I was like, oh, you guys are business owners just like everybody else and you have a skill and a craft, but that doesn't mean that you can turn that around and point it at your own business and be a super duper awesome business owner. We all get sucked into the craft of our business and have a hard time seeing how to run and operate our business from the outside looking in. And so that was how I got into coaching CPAs. And, you know, we're like, I'm snug as a bug in a rug because I have an engineering degree. So we talk money numbers and math and we do spreadsheets all day long and it's super fun. <laughs> Whereas with, the, you know, the physical therapists and the licensed whatever, they, the, the family therapists, there was more money and number aversion. So it just wasn't as easy. So I feel ah. like I landed right where I was meant to be with the numbers people.
1: There's also a word you use that I love, which is easy. It's like, you know, when you find that intersection of what you love with the people who really need it, there's that sense of ease that comes from that. Did you ever feel like you'd have to, like, get a CPA? Oh, God, Uh, no. (laughs) (laughs) You don't have to be one to understand the business.
0: Well, you don't have to understand tax, right? Right. And tax gives me hives. Mm-hmm. Uh, the minute someone mm-hmm. says 1120s, yes, I'm out. But so I
1: don't even know what that is. So I
0: <laughs> So I know I have learned some of these things, but tax still honestly gives me hives. But it's not, I don't need to know tax. I need to understand the business and the business model. And especially because accounting and tax and CPA and so on come out of an hourly billing space. There are all the classic problems downstream symptoms in their businesses that are mostly born of hourly billing and the mentality that comes with hourly billing and even though they maybe half not quite probably have moved off of hourly billing as a pricing mechanism there's still the mindset that is lagging if you will it's still an hourly billing mindset even if the pricing mechanism is different so we're doing more the high level business model, business strategy, and I don't go anywhere near tax.
1: You know, what's interesting, though, is I think you said this earlier, is that, you know, these are CPAs. So they're presumably people who are logical thinkers and plan things. And your engineering background feels like it would be simpatico with that. And I mean, that's another thing I think that's really helpful when we're trying to figure out, you know, what's our niche, who are people is where we think like. Our audience, and then where we're different, because the difference is usually the part of the Venn diagram where
0: you end up serving them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that has been super helpful because we we think alike enough, we get each other, but we don't think exactly the same. And the differential between the two is of enormous value.
1: It's kind of like saying, "Well, what if what you think you see isn't really what you see?" (laughs) You know, I mean, it's it's a fresh set of eyes.
0: Yeah, and there's so many things in the accounting space that have just been done this way for years it's you just every space has this right there they yeah. have every industry has its culture and accounting tax is no different so they I wouldn't say they're sacred cows, but there are a lot of things that are just taken as a given as this is how we do things. Mm -hmm. And like you say, it takes a fresh set of eyes to come in and be like, wait, what? You do this how? (laughs) How now? Why do you do that? Yeah. Why do you do this? Why do you not plan out your tax season and who your clients are going to be and know how much room you have and shut the door when you don't have room for more? How come you don't close your door when you're full? (laughs) That just boggles the mind right there, but okay. I mean, they have rationale for it. And if you follow it, it makes sense. You can follow their logic. And yet it leads them right into the same trap of being overworked. But it's just how they do things in the accounting space. So it takes the non-accountant to come in and be like, okay, hold on a minute. This makes no sense. And not only does it not make no sense, I mean, it makes sense in the way that you think about it, But not only can we find a better way, that way is imminently doable, you will like it better, and you will make more money, and you won't have to work as many hours. But because because the force of history is so significant and they look around and they don't see other people doing it in a new way, all they have is evidence for the other way, it feels really risky to try anything different.
1: Yeah, risky, especially in a profession that is generally risk-averse. I mean, you want well, your accountant to be the steady.
0: They hand. say that they are risk-averse, and they love this thread. I'm just going to pick it up for half a minute. They love saying that they are risk-averse, but they work long hours and risk missing their lives. They underprice, and they, work, they risk having to work extra hours in order to make up for it. They are generalists and risk having clients who are all over the map Accountants love to say they are risk averse, but honestly, I can find a list of ten ways that they are taking risks with their lives and with their business and with their profits and with their time.
1: I love that so much. I'm thinking of all the CPAs I've ever met, and it describes a lot of them right there. It's. Oh. <laughs> it's
0: <laughs> I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna win any friends by saying this, but honestly, the phrase "Well, we're accountants, we're risk averse" is like a webby. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I know. I hear that. It makes sense. Well, and truthfully, they're not that different from the rest of us, if you think they're about it, like because us. we're all risk averse when, when we think there's only one way to do something, because it's the only way that we've known. You know, it's kind of like a coming out of corporate and starting consulting and saying, okay... So I'm going to have an hourly rate and I'm going to take what I used to make. I'm going to throw in the benefits. I'm going to divide by however many hours I think is right. And that's going to be my hourly rate. I mean, you just have to start thinking differently and experimenting, right? Until you find the right thing.
0: I think one of the things about my audience is part of being a soloist and being inside your niche is really understanding how they think in ways that are different than how I just assume people think. And as a engineer kind of background, scientist-y kind of background, I don't have any problem experimenting. I learn by breaking things and trying to put it back together. So that to me, that way of doing things, seems to me like the normal and of course you would do it this way kind of way. Yeah. But the thing that I needed to come to appreciate about the way that my people think is that they really like guidance. They really like rules. They want to do a good job. They want to do the right thing. And they need the guidance, the in air quotes rules in order to be able to do a good job. And it provides them some ballast, if you will, to Mm -hmm. know that they're in the right lane. Yeah. So I have to appreciate where they're coming from and be able to appreciate their way of thinking about things so that I don't just barge in with my own sort of like, let's just experiment, what's the big deal kind of attitude, because it won't work, it won't be effective for them. And I think, if I come in with that, it might kind of, I don't want to say scare them off, but they might be more reluctant, rather than if I come in kind of appreciating how they view changing things, going against the grain, in air quotes, risk, and doing it in a way that feels safe that doesn't Mm -hmm. feel like they're going to blow a hole in the boat of their business. Doing things in a way that does feel like, okay, I can just run a swatch test on this segment of clients to see how this goes. And if it goes horribly, nobody will know. So (laughs) there's, I think, real value in being different from your niche, understanding, being the same as your, like in some ways similar to your niche, in some ways different, but also really appreciating how they view the world and not assuming that, your worldview is, doesn't everybody have this worldview?
1: Yes. And I think that's important to insert into your point of view. And then you fold that into the practices that you create to actually do your work. I mean, when you were describing it, the the word that kept flashing in neon for me was coach. I mean, because what you're doing is you're meeting them where they are, And then figuring out where they want to go and helping them to get there. It's like you're building the bridge or maybe you're bringing part of a bridge that's already built and then you build the rest together.
0: Yeah. And the thing that I'm, the thing that I love doing the most is help them get where they want to go. But even before that, help them know that where they want to go is actually possible. Mm -hmm. Because oftentimes it's very easy to think that, or here's how, here's how it goes in their mind is like, well, really, if I could have anything, I would make 500 K and take home 300 K and I would stuff by 401 K and I would work three days a week. But since we all know that that's not possible, then I will just undershoot and try and make, you know, $350,000 and I'll work five days a week because we all know it's totally unrealistic for me to make half a million dollars and, you know, have 60% margin. So we won't even talk about that. Let's just do what's realistic. And my job is to help them First of all, I've got to pull, oftentimes have to pull it out of them because their belief in what's possible is so far in their distant past. Like they've let it go as a possible option so long ago that they don't even remember that it's really what they want, or they've put it up on the shelf where it's under an inch of dust and they don't even see that it's up there anymore. They're just like, forget about my dreams. I'm just going to shoot for what's possible. Right. And allowing them time, because I will ask the straight up question. I'm like, well, what do you really want? And they're like, it's like the answer, the question doesn't even register. We have to go first by what's via what's realistic and then talk about it some more. And then usually like 10 minutes later, they'll be like, well, if I could really have anything I wanted, it would be this. Yes, exactly. (laughs) But we've got to wait for it, right? You've got to be patient. Yeah. And then it usually surfaces and I'm like, oh, okay, cool. This and they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm like, all right, now we know where we're going. And then understanding where we are, because oftentimes, you know, Cobbler's Children, and sometimes we don't know exactly how many clients are on the client roster because there are so many that we've lost track of where who they are and where they are. And they just randomly appear on April 12th. And they're like, oh, here's my stuff. I thought you might want it. And they drop it <laughs> off. And you're like, you're still my client. So it's going to be
1: so hard.
0: So, <laughs> so They don't. They don't always know exactly, you know, like who their clients are, who they're not. Who's, you know, often sometimes some clients are, don't always pay on time. And so there's a giant pile of AR. And so you don't know which clients you have to chase down to pay you before you do next year's tax return. So there can be some amount of, you know, stuff that needs to get cleaned up, if you will, before we kind of head in the direction of designing and building the thing that they actually want to have. So I love it because it's like this giant problem with so many variables that we just chip away at until we solve it. But what I know is that it is imminently solvable and none of it is rocket scientists. We just need to focus on one or two things at a time and just keep chipping away.
1: Well, it's one of those things where it's hard to do for yourself you know, because you've got, especially in the scenario you describe, you've got people who are already working kind of balls to the wall to begin with, and there's no like extra space. So th- and then you have to believe something bigger is possible and, yeah. that, and that trying to unravel the ball of yarn is actually worth the effort. So yeah, I could see why that would be a process. Let's put it that way. But oh, on the other end, once you're there, it's like you're in nir- nirvana and you can't believe you got there. That's what's so powerful about the transformations that you deliver.
0: And there's no crack better than a client who emails you and is like, I just fired. (laughs) This is probably not your everyday (laughs) sentence, but (laughs) I just fired 250 clients and I feel so amazing. Yeah. I can already see how I'm going to work a 50 hour a week tax season instead of a 70 hour work tax season. And I can't wait. Those kinds of emails are just the best. I mean, not that I'm for firing clients and I don't take that stuff lightly lightly because it's relationships and, you know, community and everything and I get it. But, you know, we have CPAs who are working seven days a week and it's untenable for them and it's not good for their clients either.
1: No. And, you know, just as a sidebar, I, I just was amazed. I love tax Twitter, by the way. I love like listening <laughs> into their conversations. They are so cool yeah. and so fun. But some of the stories yeah. they tell in April about people like showing up at a physical office with paper. And I'm like, I, know. I just, yeah, it sort of boggles the mind, but it happens yeah. all the yeah. time.
0: It does. It does. Yeah, you think the shoebox stories are just like representative, but they're actually real. People show up with shoeboxes full of receipts on April 12th.
1: Oh, I know. When when I got together with my husband and, and we finally got married, and he he had the shoebox, and he had um, we lived in L.A. and his accountant was in New York, and he would send the shoebox like right around <laughs> April fifteenth. They'd file an extension, and I'm like, no, 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 this is not going to happen anymore. It's like you're you're worried about taxes the whole year. I, I laughed about that, but the the CPA was used to dealing with creatives, and that was his business model. So okay, good for him. If it works. <laughs> Yeah, I want to talk revenue a little bit here. So, yeah. so you said is it ten years that you've been coaching?
0: So I had I think eight, seven. It depends how you count. I had two kids in there. Yeah, <laughs>
1: you're 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 allowed some t- subtraction time for that. I, I feel you. like
0: this sort of like dog years. You know, it's like you have to adjust in the opposite way. Two kids, two years of COVID, plus we moved twice. So, but I started coaching, and Hazel's eight now. So that's how I measure.
1: Okay. Okay. So eight, eight, it is. And so, do you remember how long it took you to get
0: to like your first hundred thousand year? I think it took four or five. Four or five years. Yeah. And I remember thinking that a hundred thousand dollars. I was like, oh my gosh, that is so much money. If I ever made that much money, like, how is that even possible?
1: That's what I was going to ask you. What's your your demarcation line? Like, what feels like a lot? What feels like enough?
0: Yeah, those are what feels like a lot, what feels like enough. I mean, that's it's all relative and it's always a moving target. Well, that's only a thought. But anyways, I think what I remember, I remember talking to some coaches and some consultants who were colleagues when I was starting out and they were like, yeah, you know, three years and it kind of starts to stabilize. And then four or five years, I think one coach was like, in my fifth year, I made $100,000. I was like, okay. So I kind of had my sights set on that as something in air quotes, normal. And I was like, Wow that just seems like so much money. And cause I had only ever been salary. And I think the most I made was like 70 or something. So I remember hearing on a podcast, a woman saying, and it was multiple, there were multiple coaches on an episode. And they said, your first hundred thousand was the hardest to make. And I was like, shut the front door. <laughs> <laughs> you, like that can't be possible surely if a hundred thousand is hard to make then two hundred thousand must be twice as hard to make mm-hmm. and all the coaches were like oh yeah yeah completely a hundred percent first hundred thousand is the hardest to make and I was like how I can't even wrap my head around that and then sure enough I think there was a year I went from like I don't know 80 to 150 in a year over a year like at some point it's not like I landed on a hundred at the end of the year mm-hmm. and they were absolutely right like you I just flew right by a hundred thousand yeah. By the time I got to 80, like I hit 80 or something. And then it was just like phew, and it was in the rearview mirror. And mm-hmm. I was like, well, wait a minute, how'd that just happen? And then well, it, it just gets it just gets easier. I don't want to say like I don't want to I don't want it to come across like, oh, it's so easy, you guys, because not. But the first hundred thousand for sure was the hardest.
1: So do you remember, like, was it sort of like until you got to the 80, was it kind of gradual? Or was it like a steady climb or like more like a roller coaster? Do you remember?
0: I think it was gradual. I think it was linear and mm-hmm. it started at minus 10. <laughs> and then I think it went to, I don't know, 40, 60, 80, 150. I don't remember exactly, but it wasn't roller coastery. If it, it was more linear.
1: Because the other thing is, the, I mean, you were starting from a standing start. It's not like you were yeah. in an organization, you had clients, or you had people. And I mean, you started from scratch. So it's yeah. not really surprising, I guess, that it would be kind of linear. But then, obviously, the 80 to 150 was not. And that's the thing I think the coaches were trying to say in that forum, is yeah. that you get to this point where it can start to multiply And depending on what you do to do the multiplication, it can actually be easier, far easier than the first roughly hundred, because that's when you're proving that you have a a business model that's sustainable.
0: Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's exactly that. You're trying to figure out what your business is, what it does, how to price Mm -hmm. it, how to sell it, how to deliver it. You're figuring out everything.
1: Yeah. And it's all new. Every year is like a whole new thing. (laughs) Remember that? The learning curve
0: is, (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. The learning curve is intense. And thankfully it was my second business. So it was a lot of it was familiar. And I also knew because in our first business, it was the same deal. It was like the first two years was, were like, holy smokes. And the third year we started to be like, okay. And the fourth year we're like, oh, and then the fifth year it (laughs) it clicked. Right. So I remembered, I knew that that was going to, that was likely to be my experience. So I had a little bit more calmness the second time. Not that, you know, you're not like, holy smokes, is this plane ever going to take off? Because I'm running out of runway. Yeah.
1: That's, I mean, yeah, that's the hard piece.
0: That's, I think that's the hardest piece is to like, you're like, is this plane going to take off or am I going to drive it off the end of the runway? Like, what's going to happen here? And you're like, well, I'm going to keep going and find out because I'm not getting employed because remember how bad that turns out.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's that's what we all tell ourselves on the bad days like, "Oh god, I'm not employable. I cannot go back inside. I've
0: got no, to make this hurt." No, right? No, yeah. I'm a train wreck of an employee. It's terrible for everybody. Yeah. So, the but the thing about the, the revenue is what gets easier. So, a couple of things can happen. What gets easier is you know how to make the money. Mm-hmm. Right? That's the piece that gets a lot easier because you know where you create value for your clients. And that's really because the revenue is just the shadow of the value that you mm-hmm. create. Right. So that's really what you're doing when you're making money is you're creating value, just measure it by dollars. So once you understand how to create value for your clients, which is what you're doing through the first 100,000, by the time you get to a 100,000, you've figured it out. So you just get a lot faster at it. So that's Or I I don't want to speak for everybody, but you get a lot faster at that. And because you get better at it, it's more valuable. And because you get faster at it, it's more valuable. And because you make it a better experience, it's more valuable so you can charge more. So that's how the revenue comes faster for the same amount of work or even less work because it gets easier because you get better at your job. But then the revenue side goes up, but then you're like, okay, what do I do on the back end side in terms of operations? Do I hire? How do I grow? How do I scale? What do I do first? Do I hire somebody? Do I do a digital product? Like, What's the next thing, right? Because you fill up your business and you're like, now what?
1: Well, that's exactly what happens when you usually somewhere between 100, 150, maybe 175, depending on their specialty, it's you're working, it's all you, And then you're saying, okay, so I have to leverage this puppy somehow. Yeah. What am I going to do? So what did you do? What did you decide
0: to do to get beyond that? So when I filled up, I was like, okay, I'm full. That's awesome. And then I knew that I wanted to go to a group-ish kind of program. I didn't want to, I wasn't ready for digital products yet. And So I saved up because I knew that that was going to be a business model transition, right? I was going to have to turn Mm -hmm. my business inside out. And I went to Mastermind, and that was when I developed my Mastermind program. But in the first iteration, it was called Reboot Camp. And it was all the content, and it was delivered in sort of an intense format. And then it was six months of available sort of retainer access, if you will, to be able to, to give people access as they implemented everything. And then the second round of that morphed into Mastermind, which is the program that I now have running. And at first I called that CPA Mastermind and then it became clear that what my people wanted more than making more money was to get their time and their lives back. And they all Mm -hmm. kept saying, though not they would just sort of sprinkle it in their sentences, they were like, I would just love to work a 40-hour week. And I was like, oh, you guys just want to go down to 40 hours. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's how the name came around of down to 40 hours. And then... Because in the accounting space, it's so normal and common and expected to overwork, to work 60 hours, 70, 80, whatever. And that the idea that revenue is tied to work. Yes. And I was like, oh, I need the progression to be down to 40 and then we go down to 25. And that perspective, I think, is the one that kind of flips things In people's minds like oh we're not just getting down to a normal 40-hour work week we're actually going down to way less working three days a week two days a week maybe eventually one day a week and that there's a progression we're not just like getting to 40 hours and calling it good that's got to feel mind-blowing to your client base i think to some they're like whoa that's even possible because because work is so tied up with revenue in the accounting space that, that's mm-hmm. like they've got to learn a whole new way of thinking about creating revenue, which for them, imagine being an accountant and having an engineer come in and be like, you guys are thinking all wrong about money. <laughs> it's like, <Yeah. laughs> so, I mean, I don't mean to say it that way. I could sort of summarize it glibly that way, but it's, I think when you're in your business, And you realize that how you've thought about money all your life is one thing, but then you realize that you can take this thing called money and break it apart into so many different things. It's not just a dollar sign with zeros and commas, that it's representative of value. It's an exchange of energy. It's something that lifts our communities. It's wonderful to make it. You don't have to feel guilty. There's so much in it. There's so much more. I mean, I think we have a sense that there's so much more than meets the eye. And to take something that I think for my people, at least, they usually think of with a dollar sign and zeros and commas and reframe it in a lot of different ways and be like, let's look at the ways that you resist this money coming at you. Yes. Yes. Let's look at all the ways you close down not accepting revenue. Let's look at all the ways that you feel guilty for being successful. Mm -hmm. Let's look at Let's talk about how you think that making half a million dollars is going to make you greedy, but 400, did I just say half a million? Yeah. That half a million dollars is going to make you feel greedy, but 400,000 is somehow safe. Let's talk about what happens. Like at what point do you feel safe at 425? And then where is it that it flips into being greedy? Is it 450 or 475? Is it 499? And what happens at 499 or 500 when it flips over that you suddenly think that you're being greedy? Let's talk about not looking successful and this story about being from a small town in the Midwest where there's just a blinking light and people, your clients are going to think that you've gotten too big for your britches if you raise your prices. Mm-hmm. There's so much more underneath it than it's not just this transactional thing with dollar signs and paper dollar bills. There, It is this whole rich topic that is so interesting to talk about with accountants.
1: Oh, it's interesting to talk about with anybody who's got a business, Yeah, right? Because I think, I mean, I see it all the time is that we actively push money away for Mm -hmm. reasons that are, you know, intrinsic to us and our experiences and our mindset around money, our blocks around money. I love your example Mm -hmm. of the, you know, why is 500,000 too much, but maybe 499 is okay. You know, it's, we all have those. Those points, and a lot of the people who are money mindset experts will talk about that we we tend to have a set point, mm-hmm. and over time we have to like work past the set point. So that's what I find so interesting. So I, I want to just come back to the revenue for a second. So you figured out that the way to take your business to the next level was to do something you said group ish, but really became you know group, right? And did you find that you, as your revenue was going up, were you feeling a plateau? Like, did you find yourself having to push against some preconceived notion of what you could make in your business?
0: Interesting question. I think the things that I ran into, you know, what's happened is that I've just stopped looking at the money, which is so not normal for me. Counterintuitive. Well, just like I used to think about it a lot. And now I don't even think about it. And it's so weird to not think about it because now there's just, there's enough. So it doesn't really Mm -hmm. matter. I don't want to say it doesn't really matter whether or not I look at it. That's not quite it. But I've almost, at the risk of sounding however this sounds, I've almost lost track because it's not the main thing that I think about in my business. The main thing that I think about is how do I delight clients? What is the delight that they want? And how do I delight them as fast as possible? Best possible results, least amount of time, best experience. And while I do that on the delivery side, how do I get my message, my work in front of as many people as possible? Because there are 300,000 CPAs who've just left the profession in the last couple of years. It's like a diaspora. Wow! Because they're fried.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and it's a problem, right? Accountants and CPAs are a key piece of our business ecosystem. So we need these folks, and they're (laughs) suffering, and I have the solution for them, and I want them to know about it. So those are the things I think about, right? I think about delivery, and I think about how to get my message out there as far as possible. And now the money is like this backseat thing that I don't really pay too much attention to anymore as long as I have enough of it to keep building and growing my business.
1: I want to unpack this. There's so much juicy stuff in there. So one is is you know I, I talked about that this show is about turning your expertise Into wealth, which is money, free time and flexibility and impact. And what you kind of said is once you get to the point where you have enough, in quotes, I know that number's different for everyone. And the enough isn't just about the hard dollars. It's also that you have enough free time, enough flexibility, you know, so that you you're treating yourself as a human being with needs that then that frees you to focus on the impact. I mean that's kind of what you said without saying it. Does that sound right?
0: Yeah. It's And I would add on to it and say, the more free time I have, the more I can focus on creating value. Mm -hmm. And the more that I focus on creating value, the more the whole thing spirals upward. Yes. And, And the less I work, the more money I make, the less I work, the less I work, the more money I make. Those two things are inextricably inversely correlated.
1: Yes. And that's the thing that's really hard for people. That's the thing that is so
0: hard is at the beginning, you know, we grow up W2, the more we work, the more money we make. But at a certain point, it flips. You have to make yourself work less to create more revenue. And it just it's such a mind bender. But once you get your head around it, once you see it, you're like, oh, right. And then it becomes a discipline to work as little I work in air quotes, right? But work as little as possible in order to create maximum value maximum. for clients.
1: Yes. Yes. It's like a, it's like a teeter-totter. You want to be like right in yep. the center of that where it's all just kind of flat because it's perfectly balanced in how you're doing it.
0: So you asked me about,
1: uh, did I answer your question? <laughs> Yeah, actually, I think you did because, yeah, because the other thing I was kind of curious about, and I don't think you said this yet, was there a revenue point where you just kind of sat back and said, yes, this is really getting good. I don't have to worry. Like, did you, did you feel yourself passing through that or did you only realize it afterwards once you kind of had enough for some period of time?
0: I think I realized it afterwards. And at some point in the in going from one on one to one to many or Mastermind, I brought on my own fractional CFO CPA to help me with cash flow and get me set up in an escorp and like regular payments and all that. So it was in that process where that was taken care of by somebody else, and it was no longer mm. on my mind. okay. One thing that I think is so different than when we grew up, not to make ourselves sound so old, (laughs) but like you used to get a paycheck and you used to take it to the bank. Yeah, I remember that. (laughs) (laughs) And you used to actually touch cash. And now so much is on auto pay just happens behind the scenes. So as long as there was enough, like as Once I hit the enough point and I didn't have to worry about like the question, is there enough? Let me check. That was when I was, that just felt like a level of home free. It's like you look over your shoulder and the bear is not chasing you anymore. And you're like, oh my God, now I can just relax. And that was.
1: Well, yeah, you focus forward.
0: Yeah. It's like you focus forward, but you don't even have to worry about anything behind you anymore. And that was a level of freedom that I didn't expect it to experience. Yeah. Actually
1: you mentioned your fractional CFO. Can, let's talk for a minute about like how have you dealt with the whole employees versus contractors thing? Have you have you had employees? Have you mostly had contract people? Like do you do you like having other people inside your business with you?
0: When I started coaching, I knew that I didn't want to have employees. I knew that was my goal was if I could make what i want to make and do work i love that i find fulfilling and interesting and impactful and it was enough money to meet our needs and i could do it without employees that would be heaven mm. because i mean like i'm all for businesses with employees i just know that for me like i'm a good enough boss i think i'm reasonable right most of us think that we're better than average but <laughs> <laughs> But I, I I think I'm better than average as a boss. But I still didn't enjoy it. Yeah. And it wasn't, you guys had an episode on TBOA. Where we're talking about your genius zone and your excellence zone, right? Gay Hendrix yeah. and so on, yep. the big leap. And I mean, I wouldn't even put leading people as in my excellence zone. It's definitely not in my genius zone. Maybe competence Uh, Yeah. Or maybe barely.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Or the, I like that lower left-hand quadrant. I like to call it things you suck at.
0: Yes. Yeah. And I just, I was like, it's just not where I want to put my time and energy. Developing people and developing myself as a leader of staff is just not where I want to put my time and energy. So if I can build a business in a way that does all the things I want without staff, that would just be heaven. And you know, when you're hanging out your shingle and you go out on your own, it's like pretty easy to do without staff. You just you know do the work and everything, but then you get limited by being the one who has to do the work. So then of course the scaling question comes in. And I also knew enough to know that I should hire contractors to do things that I'm really not good at, like editing my podcast <laughs> and um, some other things like that. And then with making this transition to mastermind, there's a sort of back-end operations that needs to get built to support it. And I needed some help with that. And I just, I couldn't do all three things, selling, marketing, and delivery, and operations, Yeah, all as a soloist. I was going to just go <laughs> bananas. So I have contract help because I didn't want to do W2. I was like, let's just see if we can do this contract to help build out the the frame, the shell, and then build the systems and get it operationalized so that I can focus on the marketing, the selling, and the delivery and not have to worry about the building piece. And that's been enormously useful in terms of protecting my bandwidth. And now that that's up and running, now I can run with it. And I love the idea of having and maintaining a very simple business, which takes an element of ruthlessness, because for me to stay solo, it requires that I trade off complexity and specificity for simplicity, because complexity just is going to balloon, and we used to call this um, mushrooming pitas, right? (laughs) It's like pains in the (laughs) butt that would mushroom after a rainstorm. Mm -hmm. And we got really good at spotting, like, this is a pain in the butt that if we don't pick it now, it's going to, like, proliferate. Yeah. So it requires an element of disciplined ruthlessness to keep things simple because the tendency is to get more accurate, not more accurate, but more specific, more granular, and do a few more things to make it better, but then before you know it, you've complicated it. And now you need people in order to handle the complication that you allowed for. Yes. So that's not to say that, that that it's that way for everybody, but I was finding sort of like when you talk about niche, if you're a generalist versus being somebody who's niching, at some point you have to give up diversity of generalism for effectiveness and value creation of niching, right? So you just have to Mm -hmm. trade. If you want diverse, that's okay, but you're really probably gonna struggle as a business owner.
1: Well, especially as a soloist. As a soloist. Yeah,
0: it's really tough to serve everybody. Really tough to serve everybody. And so it's just a trade-off, right? But if you like the diversity, you can just know what you're trading off. And it was kind of the same for me in my business. It's like, I like the specificity and the accuracy and the levels of granularity and our ability to A-B test this and study the results. And before you know it, you're A-B testing eight things and you're not measuring any of them.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It makes me tired just thinking about it. Like, I don't I don't want that yeah. much stuff in my brain.
0: Exactly. So it's just, it's just a trade-off of, or it, I don't want to say it's just a trade-off. I think for me, in order to remain a soloist, which is what I want, it requires making decisions, drawing the line of being like, nope. We're not doing that because we value keeping it simple and protecting the simplicity and having the freedom that comes along with the simplicity. Now, what's the trade-off? The trade-off might be, you know, I might, I could have a small team of a few people who help do things that would add value for clients into my business. And maybe my revenue would grow faster. Who knows? But that trade-off to me isn't worth it.
1: Okay. Okay. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I think it's something that every soloist faces at some point. It's like, what help do I get? Mm -hmm. Who's the right person to help me? Should they be employees or should they be contractors? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I always say, like, what is it that you want to do? Because you really have to want to lead, not manage, but to lead. Mm -hmm. If you have employees with contractors, if you're hiring people who are really good, hopefully they're leading themselves and you're just creating this thing together. It's a very different animal. It feels different on so many levels.
0: Yes. Yeah. I would agree with that. The contractors need to be self-leading and that's why I like contractors is because they tend to be self-leading, right? You're one of a handful of other clients that they're doing work for. So they're not coming to you for how do I do this? What do I do next? Yeah, They don't want to be your employee. They yeah, exactly. want to have their own business and exactly. you're their client. Yes. Right, exactly. Which yeah. is why I'm happy having contractors come in to help me with things that I need help with, but not converting them into eventual W-2s because I don't want the people who are looking for a W-2 because those kinds of people tend to be looking for somebody who's going to kind of manage and lead them. And that's not the work I want to be doing.
1: There's only so much time we've got to spend it
0: as much of it as we can in our genius zone. I mean, if I want to be leading the thing, the torch that I want to carry is for women to stop overworking and being underpaid. Shall I say mic drop?
1: <laughs> Did I lose you? It went quiet. No, you didn't at all. I wasn't sure if you were going to say more. No, I 100% agree because I feel like now I'm new to even talking about women in business. Like I've never differentiated with genders in anything that I've done in any of the businesses that I've started, run, or even been an employee of. So this is all new to me. but. The thing that is so amazing to me is how many of us think we have to work really, really hard to be valuable. It's not even Mm -hmm. about people pleasing. It's that we are not worthy if we're not constantly doing and working. And I feel like that translates into not charging enough not having enough courage to put out something that has a big price tag on it that feels a little scary or a lot of scary that um, makes imposter syndrome start to simmer on the back or front burner. Like Those are the things that when we let go of those, That's what's amazing. That's when we have breakthroughs in business. That's when we love the time that we're spending because we're doing it in our genius zone. We have time for our families. We have time for all the other things that we want to do, the impact we want to make on the world, all the things that you want to do in the CPA profession, just as one example. While you're raising your kids and having a great life, like what's not to love about that?
0: I mean, I come from a family of business owners and entrepreneurs, so... (laughs) So for me, it's like, how could you, I couldn't want anything else. I think a part of it, not to paint too broad, with too broad a brushstroke, but I think there's some cultural pressure. I think a lot of us as women, we grow up learning to stay out of trouble, right? (laughs) If you stick your head out too far, you're going to get yourself into trouble. And so I think a lot of us navigate the world of like, just don't do things that draw attention to yourself because you're just going to, like, it's Get not going to be, yeah, it's, it yeah. might not turn out well. So, but in business, it requires, it asks of us that we take risks, that we try things, that we screw up oftentimes or sometimes in public, that that things don't work, that things don't work the way that we thought they were going to, that people say negative things about us either to our faces, or in emails, or paper letters, or on Google reviews, or on LinkedIn, that we don't charge enough, even though we choose it, and then we blame our clients for underpaying us. Mm -hmm. And like you say, that somehow our personal worth is all wrapped up in not just how hard we work, but how much money we make or don't make, or whether Mm -hmm. our business fails or succeeds. And it can be very difficult to separate yourself from your business. And think that if your business is successful, that you are successful. And if your business is a failure, that you are a failure. Mm -hmm. But the problem with that, if you have those tied, is that if you are trying to fill a hole in your own personal self-worth with business success, you will perpetually chase business success because there's no amount of business success that's going to fill an internal hole. It just doesn't work. And you can substitute money for business success. Yeah, you can substitute anything you like. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: And there's this piece about not giving ourselves permission to be successful because if we do, we stand out. And when we stand out, we draw attention. And when we draw attention, it's often critical. mm -hmm. And that's very uncomfortable. And so in order to avoid feeling uncomfortable about drawing attention to ourselves, we just avoid the success because wouldn't that be easier? (laughs) But not really. But not really. Exactly. Right. It's like you just play, you just end up playing small. Yeah. And
1: I mean, if we have one theme for this episode, it's don't play small. So much as possible. Geraldine, I just want to ask you one more question, which is if you could go back to who you were when you started this
0: business, what's the one thing that you'd advise her to do? Don't waste energy to fretting and worrying because it's just not useful. It might seem warranted, but warranted doesn't make it helpful, effective, productive, or useful. And it's really easy, especially at the beginning, or it was for me anyways, to fret about all manner of things. (laughs) And to just want it to come faster, to want the results to come faster. But that usually ends up being counterproductive. I
1: just think you know that, that is such good advice. I, I mean, I, I wish I had done the same because I I wasted so many hours worrying. <laughs>
0: that it's all
1: just a waste of time in the end, isn't it? Yes,
0: yes, it is. It feels so good in the moment. Like, it feels so productive. Like I should just worry about this and that'll fix it.
1: <sighs> but it if only,
0: does. right? I know. <laughs>
1: So Geraldine, before we sign off, and I'm going to put this up on the the show notes, but where can listeners go to learn more about you and your work?
0: Sure. So I have a podcast as well. It's a business strategy for CPAs. So if you know an overworked CPA, you can send them to it. <laughs> and my website is GeraldineCarter.com. Awesome.
1: Geraldine, I just really want to thank you. I, I think this is going to be our first episodes. So I'm really excited about that. I always feel inspired when we talk about business, about money, about potential. So thank you.
0: Well, you know how much a fan I am of yours. So thank you so much for having me. And I wish you the utmost success with this new podcast.
1: Thank you, Geraldine. So that's it for this episode. I hope you'll join us next time for Solo as Women. Bye bye.